it's ironic to be preaching a message on how God is faithful today. Um, I'll be honest, it's, if I had to choose a morning to preach, I would not have chosen this morning. Uh, I have a lot of pain in my life this morning, but God is faithful, and I believe that he has a word for us today, and so I'm going to deliver that word uh, with God's help, and um, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we'll get something great out of this this morning. We're going to look into the book of Romans today. I've been taking a course at school on the letter to the Romans, and so I'm going to try not to lecture you like my prof lectures you. Um, it's a little bit different, and I'm actually reading a book about this right now, how you take a, um, a systematic theology and you make it practical, you know, down to earth so that people can actually use it in their day-to-day -day lives. So that's the challenge this morning. Uh, we're in the book of Romans, and as a brief way of introduction, Paul is writing this letter to a church he hasn't visited yet. Paul was a missionary, and he traveled all around spreading the gospel. Um, he's hoping to continue his missionary work by going to Rome and then using it as a base to go further into Spain so he can continue to preach the gospel. Paul wanted to encourage the Romans. He wanted to build rapport with them, to express how much he longed to visit them. In addition, he's also interested in doing some teaching, particularly about the gospel uh, in the letter to the Romans. Chapter one, where we're going to land today, is the introduction to the letter. And this is where we're going to talk. Um, it, Romans follows, uh, the introduction follows some typical uh, Greco-Roman uh, style of writing. It involves Paul introducing himself, he addresses the recipients of the letter, and he gives an opening greeting. After this, he moves into the thanksgiving portion where he's giving thanks to God, giving thanks to the people of the church. So he's just really overjoyed. And we're going to land there today in verses 16 to 17 of Romans 1. These two verses are Paul's like thesis statement. You know, if you were in school and you wrote a paper, you kind of had your big idea or your main point that you were going to defend the whole way. This is what this is for Paul. Verses 16 and 17 are his thesis statement. Um, and we're going to read it together after I pray very briefly for the message. Jesus, I just pray that you would take these words and just that they would hit each and every one of our hearts exactly where they need today. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our understanding and open our eyes and ears to see the beauty that is the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. I'm reading from the NIV. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Paul starts off his thesis by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, I actually think a better way of translating the kind of Greek nuance that's going on here is to say that Paul is saying, I am not shamed by the gospel. In Greco-Roman culture, the culture of Paul's day, shame and honor is a big deal. Acting or living certain ways could bring you, and especially your family, great shame or great honor, depending on what you did. Family was, like I said, the central element of shame and honor and you were expected to act and live in ways that would honor the family tradition or honor the family name. If you've ever seen Disney's Mulan, you remember how Mulan runs off to fight in the war in place of her father because she is afraid that he is not strong enough to fight and will be killed. But doing something like that was punishable by death, 
and would bring great dishonor on not only to Mulan, but also to her family. Or perhaps you remember the story of the prodigal son in the Gospels, how the younger son ran off and wasted everything that his father had given him in his inheritance, and that would have brought great dishonor not only on him, but on his entire family. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed for all the great and wonderful works that he's doing, and his family actually comes to him and says, did you knock it off? Come home with us, right? He's potentially bringing dishonor upon not only himself, but his family. So what does Paul mean when he says he's not shamed by the gospel? Simply, it means that preaching, proclaiming, and sharing the gospel with others is not going to make him feel shame. Another way of putting it might be that Paul, uh, people would try to take away Paul's credibility by defaming him when he preached the gospel so that no one would take him seriously. He'd be so covered with shame that no one would listen to what he had to say. And the most intense opposition for Paul often came from his own people, from the Jewish people. The gospel was a new and different thing. It threatened the very Jewish way of life in some ways. And as such, Jews constantly tried to shame, hurt, and kill Paul for preaching the gospel. Fierce opposition awaited Paul everywhere he went when he preached the gospel, especially to his own people. But Paul says he's not going to allow this shame, this worry to control or affect him. Preaching the gospel was of first importance to Paul, even if it came at great cost to himself. When I think about proclaiming the gospel, not being ashamed of the gospel, it's a hard thing for me to think about. I am a person who prides himself on my reputation. Typically, I'm good at what I do, generally well-liked by people. I don't know, maybe you could tell me otherwise. <laughs> Typically, I'm just pleasant and easy to be around. When it comes to doing anything that rocks the boat, that might upset someone, or might cause trouble, I typically like to keep my mouth shut. I don't like conflict, I don't like hard conversations, and I don't like causing trouble. I like it when people think well of me, when I have peaceful, pleasant relationships in my life. Surprise! <laughs> and I know that sharing my faith, being bold about the gospel, has a very good chance of upsetting people. If I share the gospel with the people in my office, with my friends at my work, or even with my buddies at maybe even my Christian school, there's a chance, maybe even a good chance, that they're not going to be very happy with me, that they'll be offended, and that will bring shame upon myself. If I boldly say things like, Jesus is the only way to salvation, or there is only one true way to be saved, that's an offensive message today. And this is the challenge to me when I read this passage. Am I willing to lay down my ego, my reputation, so that Jesus' fame and reputation can spread? Am I willing to have people think ill of me, maybe even dislike me or hate me because of my allegiance to Jesus? Am I, like Paul, being willing to be shamed by my own people for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to be faithful and do the right thing even when it will cost me? Still working on that. It's so tough, but I love what my professor Bill McAlpine says in his book, Four Essential Loves. Success is not our calling. Faithfulness is. The second point I want to bring for you today is uh, the gospel demonstrates God's righteousness and our failure. So we talked about how we should not be shamed by the gospel. 
But now I want to talk about how the gospel demonstrates God's righteousness and our failure. Paul says in verse 17, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's a little bit confusing when you read it the first time, but that's why you have a pastoral intern preaching. He's going to help you understand it. Hopefully, with God's help. The process of unpacking what this verse means is that we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. If you've noticed when I preach, I typically go back to the Old Testament. But that's because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you actually can't make sense of the New Testament. That if you took the Old Testament away, you'd have like a few words left in the New Testament. So we're going to jump back to the Old Testament very quickly because this is going to critically affect what Paul is saying here. Because Paul was a Jew. He was even a Pharisee previously. He was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have to have a bit of an understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament before we can understand what's going on here in Romans. So I'm going to jump all the way back to Genesis very quickly. We need to start by talking about a person named Abraham to understand what it means that the righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel. There's so much I could say about Abraham, but I'm going to read for you from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and also from Genesis chapter 15. And this will help us understand what Paul is getting at in Romans. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people of the earth will be blessed through you. I kind of want that blessing. Like, whoever curses me gets cursed. Just be like, don't curse me. You better like me, or you're going to get cursed. That'd be kind of nice. So why did God come to Abraham and say all these things? Well, in a nutshell, it's because there's a little tiny problem with the world. If you look in the first chapters of Genesis, or even in the world around us, you might see that there's some problems with the world. There's war, there's killing, there's lying, there's stealing, there's disasters. The world is a little bit messed up, and God knows this. And so he makes a plan to deal with the problem of evil in the world, and it starts by making this promise to Abraham. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham, as we're going to see in Genesis 15 in just a moment. God is essentially saying in this first chunk in Genesis, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and the nation that comes from you. Pretty sweet. But we need to look quickly at one more passage in Genesis in chapter 15. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it so you get the whole flow of it, and then I'm going to try and tie it all together. So in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 12, God comes to Abraham again, and this time he's going to formally make a covenant or a promise to Abraham. And I just want to read it to see if we can really get the flow of it. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, and then I'm going to read, oh, where is it? Verses 17 to 18. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. If you'll notice the first promise to Abraham, it involved descendants. And so you kind of got to have some children to have descendants. So Abraham justifiably has a little bit of a concern here. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
He took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord came to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. I'm going to jump to verse 17 now. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I'm going to stop there. So that's a big, long covenant ceremony. God's making a promise to Abraham. So let's unpack this promise a little bit. In ancient times, two parties would swear oaths together by practicing what's called a self-maledictory oath. Essentially, what would happen is two parties would take animals, they'd cut them in pieces, and they'd line them up down sides, like right here. And then the people who are making the agreement would walk down through them. Seems a little bit strange to our culture. We don't really do that anymore. But essentially, what the parties were saying is, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I'm going to do, may this happen to me. May I become like these animals if I don't hold up my end of the agreement. May this be done to me if I do not do my part. Now, when God makes this covenant with Abraham and does this act, did you notice anything strange about it? Anything missing? This is something cool you can do when you read your Bible. Typically, when I read, I look for what happens in a story, the action, the plot, the characters. But I think also when you're reading, you need to sometimes look for what does not happen or what's missing from a story. And in this story... Only one person walks down through the pieces of animal. Only one person is saying, no matter what, I'm going to do this. Only God, symbolized by the flaming torch, passed through the pieces of the animal. Do you see what God is saying? He is saying that these covenants, these promises for the entire world and for your descendants, I'm going to take care of that myself. I will keep my promise. I will be faithful. I will do it. And no matter what you do, I will be faithful to my covenant with you. If I don't, may I become like these animals. This is God saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. He's taking it all on himself. He's giving Abraham a covenant. So let's hold that thought. God has made this covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to take care of this problem. I am going to bless the world no matter what. We also need to consider one key word from our Romans passage, righteousness. Have you ever had someone in your life that wouldn't follow through on what they said? Maybe a person in your life who talked one way but acted a completely different way? Or maybe it was someone who constantly talked big but never delivered on what they promised. I've had people like that in my life for sure. This is, in essence, the opposite of righteousness. Being righteous means you do what is required of you. You do what you say you will do. You act correctly. Righteousness is acting consistently with what you say you're going to do. Your words and your actions match. It'd be as if I said, Joel, I'm going to give you my Bible. Please give it back. 
and I go over and I give him my Bible. That is righteousness. I have followed through on what I said I was going to do. What I said and what I did matched. Can I add that back? Thanks, bro. (laughs) So we've got Abraham's story of God's promises. He's promising no matter what, I am going to bless the world through you. And we have this word righteousness. Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Righteousness, acting rightly and consistently. Actions and words match. Paul is saying that this is true of God. What God said he was going to do, he did. And this is where the promise to Abraham comes in. God promised he was going to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And did he do that? Well, Paul says it's the gospel that reveals this, that God did in fact keep his promise to Abraham. So let's look at the gospel now and see if Paul is right. The gospel is about Jesus. You see, sin and evil, the things that are terrible in the world, God has to deal with those because he is holy. He's separate from us. He's distinct from us. And he cannot tolerate evil in his presence. Think of the judge in a courtroom. If someone was convicted of murder, the judge can't say, "Mm, feeling nice today, you can walk free. Not at all. Justice must be served. And God is the same way. The sin, the evil in the world has to be dealt with. And as such, punishment is due to me for each and everything that I have done that is wrong. But Jesus, the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, came to deal with the problem of sin and evil. By living a perfect life, he was capable of paying the penalty for sin for everyone in the entire world. When Jesus got nailed to the cross, God put the sin of the entire world on his shoulders. With his death, voluntarily in my place and your place, the punishment that God had to issue for sin was dealt with. With his resurrection on the first Easter morning, the penalty was paid, and people now had a chance to be restored into right relationship with God. So when Paul says that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God, he is saying, Jesus came. He's the proof that God held up his end of the covenant with Abraham. Even when we, his own people, the Jews, failed over and over. They never kept their end of the agreement with God, but God stayed faithful no matter what. God kept his end of the covenant. God was righteous, and the gospel reveals that. When I hear this, when I was thinking about this this week, I was actually really encouraged. I have also entered into a relationship with God when I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. When I accepted him, I became adopted into God's family, and now I get a chance to be in relationship with God. I get to experience the complete forgiveness of the penalty of my own failures. I get completely accepted. I get loved, the promise of a home in heaven one day. I receive the Holy Spirit to live and dwell within me. And because of God's righteousness, as demonstrated in the gospel, I can have complete confidence that God will be faithful to me even when I'm being an idiot, even when I fail, even when I completely blow it, because God never stops keeping his end of the covenant, even when I fail. Jesus is the proof of that. God did it for Abraham, and he'll do it for me and for you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God is always faithful to us, his children, whether we are acting good or not. If you're not one of God's children today, if you've never accepted the gospel today, you can become one of God's children and have the penalty 
for your mistakes paid for simply by putting your trust in what Jesus did for you in his death and in his resurrection. Whether we do our devotions or not, whether we go to church or not, those are good things, God is always faithful to us because he is a God who keeps his promises. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus, God becomes completely faithful to you. And that's a beautiful thing. That means I don't have to beat myself up when I'm failing or think less of myself because I'm not a you know, master preacher or great evangelist or praying prayers that bring people to Christ. I mess up most of the time, pretty ordinary person. But I don't have to worry about that because God is completely and absolutely faithful to me. And he'll be completely and absolutely faithful to you as well. Nothing will ever change that. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The third point I want to draw out from the text comes right from the end. Uh, and it's a quotation, actually, that Paul takes from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Habakkuk. He quotes it right at the end of verse 17, where he says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And here's the quote. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, hold on. Didn't we just spend all this time talking about how faithful God is to us in Jesus? Of how beautiful the gospel is because of God's righteousness? So how can Paul now talk about how the righteous will live? Don't we just live because God is really gracious and faithful to us? Doesn't that put a burden on us to perhaps live rightly? And how can Paul say that we are righteous? We just talked about how God is perfectly faithful and never breaks his word, totally true to his character. I'm not like that. So how can Paul now address me in the scriptures and say that I'm righteous? Well, first, we, Paul can say that the people who have accepted Jesus are righteous because of what Jesus did. When we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, the sacrifice that he made on the cross applies to us. The punishment Jesus took, it takes our guilty penalty, and the great perfect standing that Jesus has gets applied to us. As a result of that, in God's sight, because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, we become perfect and blameless. The verdict, not guilty in God's sight, the penalty is paid. Do not go directly to jail, as a popular board game would say. Because of Jesus, we are right before God. We are in right standing before God. So because of that, he can address us as righteous. But what about this living by faith thing? What exactly does that mean? We don't have time to go through Habakkuk and unpack everything. But if you read closely in the original context and go back to that book, the prophet Habakkuk says that the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Paul doesn't have to always put everything in there because his audience would have known their Old Testament cold. But for us, we're not as familiar with it. It's important to draw out that what Paul is saying is that the righteous will live by his faithfulness. By whose faithfulness? By Jesus' faithfulness. Many people will look to religion to save them. Religion says, if I do this, then I'm accepted. Or religion will say, when I do this, then I will be accepted. And believe me, I buy into this lie all the time. Live rightly, and then you can escape the cycle of reincarnation and reach nirvana, according to Buddhist teaching. In other words, do the right things, and you can save yourself. That is religion. 
Or how about Islamic teaching? There are five pillars. Declaration of faith, praying five times a day, giving money to charity, fasting, and pilgrimage. You must do these things to live an honorable and respectable life. And you cannot be a true Muslim unless you do these things. You must demonstrate your faith by putting it into practice. And it's not wrong to desire to live out your faith. Not at all. But the subtle lie is, try hard, do a better job, do the right things, then you will be accepted. Follow these rules and you will be okay. But that is a lie. Christianity is different. But you say maybe, well, Christianity is a religion. Well, sort of, but I prefer to think of Christianity as countercultural and counter-religion. I want to leave you with the big idea of today's message here. If you only remember one thing, remember this. If you only write one thing down, write this. We don't get in God's good books by trying harder to be a better spouse or a better parent or a better neighbor or a better friend or even by trying hard to be a better Christian. We don't live by trying to be better members of Urban Grace, by tithing more, by talking to more people and having more friends at church, we don't live by seeing our kids succeed, by living up to the expectations of our families, or by spending more time in the scriptures and in prayer. We don't live by getting our act together and not messing up. In other words, we don't live by trying harder. We live as Christians because of Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus was faithful on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we never could. He paid the penalty for our wrongdoing. Jesus took care of it all. He was faithful, and it is by his faithfulness that we can now live. It's not a program of try harder, do this, clean up your act. It's not that. That's religion. Christianity says the righteous one, the Christian, will live by his faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. And for that I say thanks be to God. Amen. I'll give you just one minute to reflect. I like to take time to reflect after I've heard a message. We're in a busy culture. Just take a minute. Is Jesus saying something to you? Does something stick out to you? I'd encourage you to write it down. Don't take it lightly and just let it pass. What is God saying to you? I'll give you a minute and then I'm going to call the band up. We'll move into the time of response.